This is On Diversity, a podcast series by the Institute of Policy Studies, Singapore. This is the third season and I'm your host, Liang Kai-Sing, Associate Director of IPS and also a former journalist. So this episode is in conjunction with IPS's annual flagship conference, Singapore Perspectives 2023, and the theme is Sexism at Work. Today we have Corinna Lim, Executive Director of AWARE, and also the 8 SR Naden Fellow. We also have Simran Thor, CEO of SG Herald Empowerment Limited, a one-stop victim support centre for survivors of online harms and harassment. Welcome to the podcast today. I would like to start off by asking, like, what are some common forms of sexism at a workplace which are more subtle and less obvious? Corinna, you want to go first? Okay, thank you. So if you're talking about more subtle uh, sexism, uh, we could be talking about what we call unconscious bias. And unconscious bias is, is just that, right? It is biases that everyone has, uh, which they are not aware of. And because we are human beings, uh, we will just naturally have biases. So there's a set of uh, unconscious biases that are about men and women uh, or, or different genders, right? Which um, things like women are better suited to caregiving and men are better suited to leadership. And so obvious uh, sort of uh, unconscious biases would be this idea of men as leaders. And uh, if you have a female employee that uh, she's likely to probably prioritize the family more than than men. And uh, as the boss, you accord, you know, you treat her based on that assumption. All right, so that's one. I guess the other one that is comes up very often is the expectation that women should generally be warm and accommodating. And when they're warm and accommodating, they say, oh, good, you know, she's a nice woman, but then maybe she's not so competent and capable because there's the other expectation that people who are capable must be direct, outspoken, you know, ambitious. And so it's very difficult for a woman to be seen as a leader if she has to be seen as, you know, she must satisfy the criteria of being warm as well as of being capable, right? A lot of, and these assumptions do not apply in the same way to men, right? Men just really just need to be seen as capable and competent and not expected also to be warm and accommodating. So these are some of the sort of general ideas, right? And we see this being played out in the workplace a lot. And maybe uh, Simran, who's been in the corporate world for probably longer than me and more recently than me, <laughs> maybe she can expand on some of the direct or indirect experiences yeah, thanks, Karina. I was actually um, a lawyer for 20 years, so longer than I'd like to admit, but um, <laughs> until last month. So um, just to pick up on your point on unconscious bias being one of the forms of sexism, actually this can play out in quite in- insidious ways, right? So the, 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 the less obvious ways this, you know, is perpetrated is at the time of recruitment. So when you're picking people to hire, you may unconsciously choose one gender over another in some situations, depending on what the job is, right? Simple examples are like nursing jobs or if you want to be an engineer, you know, you may unconsciously think a male is performs better than a female. Then, of course, it comes to uh, work assignments in any kind of job. Um, I'll just use law as an example because that's where I came from. Um, it's quite common to 
route female lawyers to family law or like oh, more okay. caring aspects of the law and then construction law. You know, you you find mostly men are assigned to that kind of work. But of course, that is, you know, it doesn't take into account the person's interest or ability, right? Um, so even things like general office tasks, you know, like the homework of the office, like organised dinner or get people together, um, they tend to fall to females um, and all these tasks take up time, but they don't actually count towards your work progression. So unconscious bias is actually something that is quite, um, it spans the, the you know, from the beginning to the end of someone's career experience. So it's quite, quite important to address, I would say. Um, and then, I mean, you know, I guess the biggest, most obvious problem is that women tend to be judged uh, when we are being judged for our capabilities, right, for promotions and things like that. Um, the stereotypes tend to work against us because, you know, in today's corporate world, you have to be outspoken, strong, loud. These are positive qualities when viewed in a male context, but in a female context, not so positive. And people tend to be judged badly uh, or at least struggle with that identity. And you often find people saying, oh, she behaved like a man, that's why she got to the top. Um, which is a terrible thing oh, to say. Oh, she behaved like a bitch, right? There's also That's also the right. derogatory comment that... Yeah, and that the, the, the reverse doesn't apply, right? So you don't really hear men being um, put down for being uh, having a good listening ear. They, they're actually praised for having, you know, the, the sensitivity to, to add to their list of accolades. So yeah, stereotypes, definitely something we need to address. I see. But I think the Council of Europe also recommended, right, like what are some sexism at work, which also includes like sexist humour or jokes or comments about women's dress and physical appearance, which you touched on briefly just now. So do you see that happening a lot in Singapore? Yes, absolutely. So um, th- this is like another group of um, barriers uh, that we have. And people talk about glass ceilings. I don't think of the workplace as glass ceilings. I think that it's more like a maze, right? That women at all points, right, from the beginning to the end, they have to uh, navigate, right? And sexist um, comments uh, are one of those that make women first feel like, ah, I, I don't feel comfortable in this place. So they feel excluded. They're supposed to laugh at something that they are not comfortable with, but yet they can't say they're not comfortable with. If they say like, you know, that is not appropriate or that's not funny, they might be rejected by the bosses or by the peers, right? So, but it does leave a sense of, I can't really be myself, right? Uh, And um, at some point they might leave, uh, or play along and just suck it up. Uh, so I think sexist behaviors. Because the other thing that it does do is that if if there are sexist sexual jokes, is you are you know there's there's a sort of an objectification of women. And how can you then respect your colleague who is a woman if we are also uh, seeing them as sexual objects, right? So uh, it's all very subtle. It plays at a subconscious or psychological level. People may not even realise that it is affecting the way that they're thinking about women. And to have this in the workplace, right, it, it is uh, it's just not appropriate. Uh, the good thing is that there is so much more awareness these days of uh, how unacceptable this is. And what we do see is companies now drawing a clear line and saying, look, this is just 
out of bounds. We do not tol- tolerate this kind of uh, behaviours. And there may be consequences if uh, you continue to make these sexist remarks. Um, the other thing that I did want to uh, talk about was also, you know, we, we talk about individual behaviours, right? Individuals making sexist comments. And there will always be individuals who do this. What is important is, you know, what can others who are bystanders or more, even better, what can the company do, right, to actually um, reduce or prevent these behaviours from individuals? And that's why we focus a lot of the work, and I'm glad this podcast is dealing with workplace, right, because actually workplaces can do a lot to change individual behaviour and to make it better. Mm, okay. So what about Simran? Because when we talk about sexist comments or sexual jokes and all that, when does it cross over to sexual harassment actually? Okay, so that's a very interesting and difficult question. Um, it really is quite fact-specific. So every single case is going to be different. So sometimes one comment is enough, depending on uh, how serious it is. Um, or how blatant it is. And sometimes you need a course of conduct, like it has to be done over time. Um, and I think in terms of... Um, so what, what we've been seeing recently, as Corina mentioned, is yes, there's a lot more awareness. Companies are aware, workers are as, as aware, you know, and Me Too played a big part in that. But there's a lot of confusion. I can't tell you the number of times people have come to me to say, I don't know what to say to my female colleagues anymore. I just said, you look nice, and then now I'm afraid I'm going to be fired. Or when I'm talking to them, you know, I'm a tactile person, I accidentally touched her elbow, am I going to get fired? So I think people are aware that this is important and it shouldn't take place. But I think currently there's a the struggle, people are grappling with what the limits of what is acceptable and what is not is. And of course, that is based on your cultural environment, you know, societal norms quite a lot. And Really, I think the only solution for this is to have these conversations uh, very readily and frequently in the office, have training, have the employers aware that this is important. It's important for the employees to understand as well. And, you know, I can't say enough training, training, training. It kind of gets people uh, familiar with at least the baseline uh, of what is unacceptable and what may be a grey area kind of uh, situation. So people know when... um, that, you know, the company itself uh, has a zero tolerance level uh, on certain types of conduct. And so when that happens to them, they know that they can complain and that the company will also view it as wrong. Corinna, you're aware is actually involved in such training, right? Yes. Can you tell us more about it? Absolutely. So we have started a, a de- department called Catalyze Consulting, which is the corporate training arm of where we also do institutions like universities. And uh, like Simran says, training is really important. It gives you the basics, right? So, for example, um, and we will train employees first and then the managers. Sometimes we do leadership and HR training as well. We also help uh, companies to draft very comprehensive policies uh, to, to both prevent and address harassment. Uh, so, the definition of harassment, right, uh, is an important one. And some people might feel confused about it, but I, I try to like, uh, it's not, it, don't worry so much about um, 
uh, about whether or not you're crossing the line because if you do, it doesn't mean that you're going to lose your job. It just means that uh, you might get some feedback that this is not comfortable for another person. They're going to be telling you this. And that that's that may be all it is. But at least, you know, because I think the word harassment seems very loaded for people because we think of harassment as, oh, Harvey Weinstein's type of harassment, you know, major, major consequences. But it's a whole range of harassment. And so first, I mean, some pointers, right? Firstly, it is not about the other. It's not about the alleged perpetrator's intention. Intention is... Uh, the person might be joking, but may have still negatively impacted the party that they're speaking to or the people, the group that uh, they're speaking to, right? And once there is a sense of discomfort, uh, uh, this is offensive, uh, then there's harassment. And, in you know, intention is a factor, but it doesn't mean that there was not uh, harassment, right? Intention is a factor into like thinking about whether how serious it is, but it already crosses the line, right? So, so intention is not the test. However, there is an uh, a test of reasonableness. So, um, it is about whether or not, generally speaking, and that's why uh, Simran says it is about the context, it is about the environment. What is the culture in the company in uh, in Singapore? Right on this, and um, that can be taken into consideration. Do other people see this as problematic, uh, as offensive? If only one person felt that it was um, offensive, it may be that perhaps it wasn't so reasonable, right? But if some people, you know, more than one person felt that it was it was offensive, then. Uh, it probably is harassment, right? So there's a test of reasonableness, which is why it makes it a little grey. Okay. Now, but in those grey areas, right, where it may be or may not be, we call them like, if you use a traffic light system, they are like the orange light. It may be in this context, and maybe some people will find it offensive, some not. But if the subject of this, right, the, the so alleged victim feels upset by it, then it becomes red light and, she, and this person does communicate and says this was inappropriate. Then you just stop. It becomes red light immediately. The orange light has turned to red, right? But if it was like, oh, everyone's uh, fine with it, then it becomes green light, right? So uh, one should not feel too anxious about like not knowing exactly because you will get cues. I think what is important to understand to look out for signs, to be a sensitive person, uh, you know, to have high EQ, right, in relation to these orange light situations. The red light situations, you should just never engage in, and those are very, very clear, right? Um, so, yeah, I think we should not get too anxious about this. It is about just making sure that the workplace is very comfortable for everyone to thrive. Mm, okay, but what about some situations when the workplace, there's some norms that are toxic? <laughs> like, it's already established that this is okay, but actually if a newcomer in the company, they may feel that it's red light, whereas those who have been in the company for, for many years would think that this is acceptable, or this is like quite okay and all that. How would you advise them? I can understand it's very difficult for a newbie in a company like that to try and raise things to management to say, you know, you've got entrenched ideas that are against the norm. Um, so I think in that 
kind of situation, there are some external resources people can go to for help. Um, Catalyze and AWARE being one of them. Um, and then there's also the Tripartite Alliance um, for employers under the MOM. Uh, sometimes you call them up, they can give you some advice, point you in the right direction uh, to, to, to lawyers if need be, um, to see what your recourse may be. Um, but of course, that is dependent on something actually having been done against you. It would be even harder if you just go in and objectively observe, oh, this company, people uh, think this way, but they haven't actually done anything <laughs> wrong yet. Um, so that that's not ideal. I mean, and I think that's why the MOM is really... Uh, trying to actively encourage policy adoption uh, by companies across the board. Um, I think the white paper on women's development also recommended that the uh, fair practice TAFEP guidelines be entrenched in, in legislation, which I think is a great uh, development. So not only just employers, um, you know, I mean, having a policy within your companies is a great signal as to what you will and will not adopt. Some of these policies actually have uh, examples of um, what is, like you say, a red light kind of behaviour. So people are very, very clear on what can be reported. The policies also very clearly set out the reporting process, how it will be independent, how your confidentiality um, and your needs will be observed and um, you know how the outcome will be communicated to you. Um, a lot of policies also hard code the requirement for a bystander reporting. So if you see someone um, it, your, it happening to your colleague, you should speak up. Um, so not only companies, you know, my, my personal feel is that companies should adopt these policies, but so should um, industry bodies. So like the Law Society or the Accountants Body, you know, just to send a, a very clear signal to the entire profession that, you know, at the very apex, this is how we expect people in this industry to behave and to adopt. So uh, Law Society is, is going to be a, launching a template harassment policy for firms to adopt next next month. They've tried to, uh, you know, define uh, certain examples in, in, their, in their lawyer's way um, of what harassment is, both sexual harassment and power harassment, because they're really two types, right? Um, and, you know, hopefully that can be something that other industries will adopt as well. Mm, okay. yeah. Can That's I say good. something about the toxic workplace uh, sure, situation, sure, sure, which I think yeah. is a really great one? Uh, so, yes, we have, like I said, it can be at individual level and we have to think about uh, power imbalances. And of course, the, the sort of greatest power imbalance if the, is if the whole workplace and the whole culture is such that it is toxic, right? It could be that it's been male-dominated for a long time and, you know, uh, the leaders are all um, male, uh, and because and and I'm not picking on men. It's just that this is where we do see right when there are like male dominated workplaces, and also uh, where the leadership there's no gender diversity. This the uh, studies and experience has shown that this is where more likely uh, there will be a toxic workplace, right? And you know it's because people have been doing things a certain way all this time, and like I said because of the awareness, the whole culture, what is expected of workplaces, all workplaces, is going, is has changed. And the Singapore government is making this now the, the, the new norm. It started in 2015 with the managing of uh, workplace harassment tripartite advisory. And now we're going to be making a lot of this law 
uh, this could not have come sooner, right? We we really, really uh, need this to send a signal to all workplaces about certain basic norms that must be observed. With uh, p- the people who call Catalyze for training uh, to come in to help them, these tend to be the larger companies, the international companies, right? And sometimes they have a mandate from the global HQ, you must get this right. But there's so many companies that do not pay attention to this at all. And then we get the, um, the victim survivors from companies that, that haven't got it right and they come to the workplace harassment and discrimination advisory. We hear these cases every day, right, about uh, things that have gone wrong, whether it is very overt discrimination and sexism or harassment that people feel, whether sexual or power harassment. Um, so I think it is really important that to know that it cannot just be one boss that has to be, you know, in charge of this. It's a, the companies must actually uh, t- make a corporate initiative and set the right corporate culture. And to encourage the companies to do so, we need government interventions. And when things go wrong, we also may need uh, interventions that are external to the company. Right, whether it's nonprofit groups, whether it's tough app, there really should be an authority, right, that has disciplinary powers against companies that have not done the right thing to set this culture, right, to take care of its staff and ensure safety. Yeah, okay, Corina, because there is this NTUC survey, right, that underscored that SMEs need clearer discrimination and harassment policies, right? With only one third of the respondents saying that their companies have communicated such policies to them. So I think you mentioned about regulatory actions and the government to come in. But what are some other ways to sensitise employees to issues of gender discrimination other than going big with the regulation uh, direction? Um, Simran? So I just want to take it a little earlier than that because by okay, the time sure. you move into the workplace, you're already a certain age and you know certain types of behaviours or biases are already long ago entrenched, right? And that's really what sets the culture and that's what actually makes it harder to change. So one way of changing it, yes, is to regulate, put in place guidelines or sanctions or things like that. But you also got to look at the other end of the stick, which is the prevention. And I think, you know, studies generally show that gender stereotypes can be entrenched as early as age 12. So you really want to take this quite far down the line and um, start talking to people in primary school or even younger about, you know, what um, stereotypes are, uh, how you may actually hold certain beliefs and biases in, in ways that, you know, younger people can understand. So at least that they are aware uh, on what culturally is appropriate right now and, you know, how one might actually perpetrate bias unconsciously. Uh, we all do, I'm sure I do all the time, uh, but at least being alert to the situations where you think you might be exercising bias, uh, you know, that would help. Mm-hmm. So it's like boys who play with cars and girls who play with dolls, that kind of biases or what kind so that, of biases those are, are you Yeah, performances about? of gender roles, but uh, bias would be something like I'm not... I believe that boys are better at something than girls or are more suited to something than girls and I believe it unconsciously. I mean, another type of bias is self-preference, right? The mirror principle. When I look at someone who's like me, 
I, I like them more. That's how we choose our friends, right? That's how we choose our, the people that we hire. So we've just got to be alive to these things as we move on. And I think your, your NTUC survey that you mentioned is the same survey that found that 23% of uh, respondents in Singapore um, believe that there is uh, sexual discrimination in the workplace, which is almost a quarter, which is a very worrying amount of people that expect to be treated a certain negative way in, in the workplace. So I think that's definitely a fair bit of work that needs to be done in the education aspect. Mm, okay. Yeah, I think we also mentioned about training and courses and everything. So, And similar, you mentioned about starting younger and earlier. I but, think aside from mm, training and courses, Korea, right, mm. you can actually, so a tricky one is how do you deal with unconscious bias? If it is so unconscious, how do you deal with it? That's right? true. People don't even know that right. they have it, right? So yeah. actually, but there are ways of dealing with it where... Uh, you build uh, your systems and your processes so that you to to compensate for the unconscious bias that people will have and are not able to control, right? Okay. So, for example, the hiring process is a good one, right? Uh, Simran talked about that. You know, either you are selecting someone that looks like you. So, if you are, uh, and there are more male leaders, right? If you look at uh, leadership, there are more male supervisors in general, right? Then there are female that and, and who are in powerful positions. So, they, t- they tend to be the ones hiring, right? So, if you hire someone that is similar to yourself, then you might be hiring a, a, a man if you are a man. If you're a woman, you might be hiring a, a woman, right? Uh, then also, like, just this uh, expectations, gender roles, so how do you compensate for that, right, in your system? So uh, one is, you know, uh, the it, making invisible the gender, the race, etc., until you need to actually disclose it. But at the filtering process, let's make sure that we don't know the race because it's not necessary at that point, gender, etc. Until you have to meet the person, then it's like, okay, you you, you have no choice. You have to, to, to you will know, right? Uh, but you, you try to... Uh, reduce the likelihood of unconscious bias coming in to affect your hiring process as much as possible. Then when you hire, when people go into that uh, re- uh, the interview room, firstly, you must have a different a, a diversity of interviewers. Uh, secondly, and you could do a few rounds of that, right? You, um, secondly, you have, everyone's gone for unconscious bias training. Uh, they have a checklist at that table when they're interviewing to to make sure, you know, that they are checking these biases. We use what we call structured interviews so that everyone is asked, all interviewees are asked the same questions, right? We don't ask, we try to minimise like that personal connection where like, oh, we went to the same school, you know, and then we talk about this, the school that we went to and how amazing it was. And then immediately we form a connection, a chemistry, which other people didn't have with this particular interviewer, right? So you try to reduce all of these instances where your personal uh, preferences might come in, right? Because that's where the unconscious comes in. Anyway, so there are ways to design even your interview, your promotion process. Identify uh, those those points where biases are likely to affect a person's uh, career and then work on those. Uh, also, find out your data, like, you know, how many women do you have at each level? Uh, why are people leaving? You know, get data so that you can make the right intervention in your company. All this is a lot of work. 
this doesn't have to be done overnight. It's a work in progress. And so, you know, people can just keep working at this over the years. And it is a lot of work. And I've, I've just found that um, a lot of companies, that is the, the, the sticking point for them, right? It costs money and it's, it takes time. And they don't feel that it's worth it because a business is about making money. What is the commercial benefit to me for doing this? And I, this has been talked about for a while, but I, I do feel, um, you know what Corina mentioned before, that the foreign companies, MNCs, are very they're on the board, you know, they understand that there is um, actual, <laughs> to put it bluntly, monetary benefit for uh, having um, these measures in place, ensuring diversity is, is present within their company at all levels. Um, you know, if at the very least, it, it attracts and retains talent, right? Um, and at deeper levels, the, dis- the type of decision-making is more robust and it can actually result in dollars and cents outcome. But I, I don't think a lot of local companies have really ingrained this ethos just yet, which is probably why they don't feel like this is priority number one for them to address. And we're having to use a lot of sledgehammer tactics like law, guideline, you know, and it's not coming up organically just yet. But maybe with the younger generation who are much more alive to these kind of issues, the, the needle will shift. Um, and on that, actually, I've seen something quite interesting um, uh, which is that there are a lot of older women who probably have experienced a lot of sexism and a lot of these challenges along the way before they get right to the top. And then when the, the, the younger mentees talk to them about these issues, the older ones can be quite dismissive and say, hello, I went through this and that's what it took to make me the person I am today, aka successful. So I wouldn't complain so much if I was you. Which is precisely the opposite of what you would expect to hear. But it's also understandable because... Um, they feel that it gave them tenacity and strength and resilience. Um, but I think that is also something we need to, to do, which is to really, you know, look out for our own. We encourage diversity so that the, the, you know, the women on, on boards, for example, can encourage and pull up those um, below them. Mm, okay, that's a very interesting point and which, something that I wanted to raise also because I wanted to ask whether women are also guilty of perpetuating gender discrimination. One point is uh, what you said, and another point is also they may also deny the presence of gender bias and barriers, right? They will say that, oh, they did it, so everyone should be able to do it, right? So, Corinna, what do you think, how do we address these issues? Are women leaders who, who think that this is not an issue? Uh, really, sexism in terms of perpetrators, <laughs> it's not, it is uh, probably like gender neutral because it's a system, right? Of, it's a system of thinking and it, it goes beyond gender. And not uh, and women who have succeeded, some may have succeeded because they played the old game uh, which and they and they survived it and they thrived in it. And I suppose it's hard for them to see that other people, I think Simran's right, it is understandable in a way because also if they say, well, you know, we succeeded, but, you know, the old system should be changed, in a way, they are... Um, taking away, they from taking system, away yeah. something that they did, right? They're like... So so it doesn't really uh, r- resonate well with them to actually knock the old system because that is how they excelled, right? And they're not going to be so understanding about it. So it's not so useful to actually say oh okay women do this as well I'm like men and women do it doesn't mean that it's right 
right? And uh, the women who had who did it, they had to do it in order to get where they were. They felt this was the only way, and probably they were right. This, that was the only way to actually go all the way to the top, right? But that's why it, we have to go beyond individuals, right? It has to be that there is a sea change in workplace culture, in the way that we look at what leadership should be about, uh, what the workplace should be about. One of the things that is we have not talked about is actually caregiving. And the workplace was designed, there is an inherent bias that is built into the workplace that is not friendly to women who still to today do more of the caregiving and are expected to do more of the caregiving. The workplace was not designed with caregivers in mind. When the, we had the Industrial Revolution, the men went out to work, the women stayed home. There was a sort of very clear division of labour in that way, right? But of course, things have changed. And uh, especially for Singapore, we needed everyone, still need everyone uh, as far as possible to work. And I think it, it is good, you know, to have financial independence. So many we women should definitely have that choice readily available with no cost to themselves, right? In, in the same way that it's not a cost to men. Um, so the workplace itself has to change its bias against caregiving. Okay. So for caregiving, I think you are mentioning not just um, taking care of their children also, right? It's also about taking care of their elderly parents and all Increasingly that. so, right? And this will become an even bigger issue than taking care of young, younger people. Why? Because almost all of us have at least one, two, maybe three, four older parents and parents-in-law to take care of. Right, uh, and Singapore is is the fastest, one of the fastest aging countries in the world, and when it hits us, it's just going to be like boom, you know. Suddenly, when when the it's the and it's the age of so when older people turn like seventy five, eighty, that we see the bodies break down a little bit more. They will be going to the hospitals a little bit more. Who's going to be you know taking them there? And navigating care, you can have a domestic worker. For those of us who are lucky and have that that um, privilege, it, they might do some of the basic caregiving. But who's navigating the care that's needed? And any one of us who have been through the, these hospital systems know that it is very complicated, and you might need friends to help you with it, etc. Right? All your connections become important. So. Yeah, it is going to be a very huge issue, I feel, for Singapore. I but mean, it, mm, ironically, we're a victim of our own success of, the, you know, our past feminist sisters who really um, fought so hard to allow us to go to the workplace, right? So women aren't just confined to the home. Everyone can work. And so now there really is no question. Almost every woman is expected to work in Singapore, right? But at the same time, what didn't happen was the men who were in the workplace, their stereotypes to be the one at home, be the caregiver, be the parent or the primary parent, didn't change. So basically what we've ended up in a situation where everybody's in the workplace, nobody's at home, and then the people who are carrying the burden of everything tied to the home, children, caregiving, young, old, falls on the female because of age old stereotypes that women do this better or they're more naturally inclined to do so. So yes, we do need to shift the coin and I think a lot of the work needs to be done on the, the other side of the coin, which is that changing the stereotypes for it's okay for men 
to stay at home and be, be the caregivers and bear that burden too. Um, in fact, it's not even a burden, right? It, they, that part hasn't shifted in a long, long time. And we'll have to do quite a lot to shift that. Um, I, I'm not so sure that they even have equal amounts of parental leave and care uh, you know, entitlements at the moment. So I think we're going to have to look at that further. They definitely don't have, right, men? And that's one of the things that, uh, as Simran has pointed out, you know, and in my lectures I said care and and men is where really if you want to get, these are the greatest opportunities where we can make big shifts because they are laggards, right? In in this whole, like, women have been going to the workplace, etc. And, you know, women's education is equal. So we have made a lot of progress in some areas and very little in some other areas. And it is this, the fact that, you know, we haven't made equal progress in all the areas that we needed to in the home, in workplace policies, you know, parenting, leave policies, all of these things. We haven't made that equal uh, shift. So now you're seeing some of those cracks, right? Which is like... Uh, it's uh, you. You have less women in leadership, right? The fact that uh, we only have like I think eighteen percent on the board, right? There are quite a few factors for that, but just looking at senior leadership, we have thirty-two percent in senior leadership of of women compared to you know seventy, sixty something, sixty-eight uh, percent. So it's uh, these are the reasons for the gaps, right? Because actually men's roles haven't changed that much. That's one big thing. And caregiving, we haven't changed enough. COVID was fantastic, right? Uh, because it now allowed, it made remote working, flexible working a norm. We could not see that even with, you know, whatever government policies, we we, we, we threw money at this problem as well. You know, we gave com- companies money to actually adopt flexible working arrangements very, very, very slow until COVID came and suddenly it became possible, right, to to work from home. Mm, okay, but COVID is almost over, right? So we, we actually revert back to what happened in the past that, you know, you have to stay in the office to to. It won't revert back to it. the past in the way that it was, right? The question is, what is the new thing? How What does hybrid look like? And what are some of the inequalities that might still come up uh, in this hybrid system is definitely not going back to the old system. And you can ask, um, you know, your your friends about how their working arrangement has been. You can ask companies. No one's going to go back. <laughs> no one, because we've all enjoyed this thing about oh, not having to commute. And companies have actually benefited from that as well. Uh, the, the other thing is like, do we get enough rest? Right. So there are pros and cons to the new system, which we also have to be mindful of. There are new challenges, but the fact is that we don't have to go to the workplace. But are we working overly long hours such that our mental health is suffering? Okay. Yeah, I think one of the areas we might have to look at further is how women with young children fare in a working from home environment. I think they face quite a high level of challenges trying to balance things. Um, because if you have children, you'll know that sometimes they just they don't leave you alone when they know you're behind the door. So I, I think my personal feedback has been that that is one group that struggled quite a lot with flexible working. So they thought it's something they wanted, but then it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. So we're going to have to see how things play out over the next couple of years, actually. I think there'll be some, as Corinna said, some rebalancing, uh, people finding a new, new, new normal that works for them. 
Mm, okay. So interestingly, because we were talking about caregiving and women with children, and earlier on we were talking about the interview process. So is it is it illegal for for interviewers to ask women whether are they single, are they married, are they planning to have children right now, or is it still is it still okay, Simran? Well, it's not outright illegal, um, but the question really is why are you asking? Okay. Right. If you if it's completely absolutely relevant to your job performance. I mean, I can't think of an example right now how it might be. Uh, yes, you can. But um, I think most of... <laughs> well, common knowledge is that employers ask these questions because they want to know how long you're going to spend in the office bringing you know, work to them, uh, which isn't fair. Um, if you're asking it truly to have an open conversation um, in, you know, in the way that, okay, you've got children, okay, how much time off do you need? I'm prepared to be flexible. I, I think that would be fine. But if you're asking that simply to exclude people unfairly on the basis purely of their marital status or whether they have children, then, you know, it's, 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 but it's, it's unfair. Not, but it's still not illegal, If right? you had that intention yeah. and you ask those questions, it's still not illegal, but at least there are some TAFEP guidelines which they say will be uh, part of the new anti-discrimination law. So I do expect that there will be a little more consequences for asking these types of questions in the near future. But right now, if someone complained, uh, Telfat might give you a call and say, oh, you're not supposed to be doing that. You know, have you come, why don't you come for the training on how to build an inclusive workforce? Right. So that's the sort of um, not very strong disciplinary repercussions if you ask. But yeah, I think it's, that's where we are. And at most there might be, I don't know, if you do it too often, maybe there's some shaming uh, if from time to time you see like blacklist of employers, but yeah, it's not illegal. Okay, coming back to this point about um, you know legal and not legal, are there any recourses for for workers who are subject to gender discrimination? So I mean, both of you are lawyers, <laughs> lawyer trained, law trained. So um, what 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 needs to happen on the legal front? In terms of supporting employees? In terms of supporting employees and also legal recourses if they are discriminated? Well, I mean, there's different kinds of discrimination, right? There's just sort of maybe touching your shoulder and then what do you do about that? Then there's the, at the other extreme actually having you fired based on, you know, reasons pertaining to sexism. So then the, the legal steps you would take would, would differ based on both. Um, I think, you know, again, one of the resources is the TAFAP hotline. Um, you can call and just get some guidance on what you need to do. They may be able to point you in the right direction, one of which may be you should probably talk to an employment uh, lawyer to understand what your rights are and, and how you can take this forward. Um, I think for smaller transgressions like you know har harassment in the office and, you, and if there's already a policy in place in that office, then the policy should be the first line of recourse, which is look at that and see what it says about how to file a complaint, is there a whistleblowing hotline and then utilise that. Okay, Karina? Yeah. So I think that uh, we, we can have stronger laws in this area. So uh, in relation to harassment, this is, I think, what is needed. We need a law that says that companies must protect, will protect their employees from harassment. That means that and this goes to prevention as well. You have policies, you communicate these policies regularly, you uh, train on people under these policies when instances of harassment happen, you have taken the right action, right? There should be a law that actually says this is the duty of the company. Arguably, this may already be the case in common law, but because it's common law, it's not black and white law. 
uh, people don't actually do this. That's why most companies till today don't have processes in place to address this issue. When it comes to um, discrimination, uh, the anti-discrimination law is going to be an important one. The question is, what is going to be in that anti-discrimination law, right? I mean, we're quite clear that the Prime Minister uh, has said it will cover gender, so that's great, and age and race and religion. Uh, that we don't know whether it covers the intersectionality of uh, sexual orientation, um, but the big question is, what are the processes, you know, how will you actually... Uh, make use of this law if you are discriminated? What is going to be recognised as discrimination? Is it just direct discrimination? And we, we also see what we call indirect discrimination. Will that be covered, right? Or is it only when you are like directly sacked because of something? What if they have policies that make it very difficult for women to actually get certain jobs? Will those be covered as well? Right. So there are a lot of question marks at this point about what the anti-discrimination law is. And I, I think the, you know, uh, the first version is probably the government is going to try to find a way to balance employer and employee's interests. Um, but I hope that, you know, they will actually, it will be a law with teeth and which is comprehensive enough to actually make a difference and people will use it. It yeah. will be a deterrent and where there are instances of discrimination, people will find that this law is helpful. That would be the test. You know, in the US, they actually uh, file lawsuits also, right, for discrimi discrimination lawsuits. It, it's not that common in Singapore, right? Can I just understand why? Because lawyers are expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I, I don't confirm or deny anything oh. in true lawyer speak. Um, but, um, no, no, Karina, carry on. Uh, you have to, f firstly, okay, so we're now talking, uh, firstly, the laws are not strong here, right? So then you have to look at like, okay, uh, was there a breach of employment contract? Okay, so now we're going to civil rights. And uh, so then you have a civil suit. Now, civil suit, you don't have, it's not like the police taking on a case or an authority taking on a case. The person who has suffered, it has to be the one appointing a lawyer and taking the company to court. Where it gets difficult is you have to show what damages you suffered. And the Singapore law on damages, like, you know, they're like, oh, you could have gotten a job because you have to mitigate your damages, which means that you can't just sit at home and then not work for 12 months and say, oh, I'm claiming for 12 months of damages. You also have to go and help yourself and get another job. Right, so then at most you might get, oh, you could have gotten a job because the Singapore job market is very vibrant. You could have gotten a job in two months, right? So then you get two months of damages versus how much you have to pay your lawyers, right? So that's why on balance, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. People just prefer to move on. You're taking on as an individual a whole company. Uh, the company will have deeper pockets. You make all of these calculations and you say, even though I feel strongly about this and I feel there was grave injustice, I'm just going to walk away, right? So that that's, I think, why. Yeah, and in the States, you have this thing called punitive damages, right? Which is also awarded by a jury. So then you get things like 10, 15, $20 million damage awards when here you will get the actual loss you suffered, <laughs> which is two months. Okay. So right? the distress that you suffered doesn't really, you know, it, the, the law here finds it hard to actually give you compensation for. 
And there's also the cultural aspect. And Singapore is small and a lot of industries are small and people all know each other. So nobody really wants to rock the boat and particularly Absolutely. if the perpetrator is their senior you know, respect for elders still <laughs> exists in the back of their mind somewhere, I guess. And then, of course, it's, I don't want to be the person seen in the industry as the one who will complain, no one will hire me again. So they decide on cost balance, and I'll only get two months, and lawyers are expense everything together. I'll just keep quiet, and I'll be the one that resigns and leaves the company and moves off. We mm. have had several cases, though, of settlements, which means that someone does appoint a lawyer, there's a clear case of harassment, discrimination, etc., they then, uh, the lawyer writes a letter, the company, uh, and everyone wants to settle it this way. That means a quiet settlement where there is some financial compensation. So it may still result in some amount of justice to the survivor. Um, and we have seen like, that in no way did the survivor want to go to court because of the industry that they're in. So in fact, uh, in one case, I recall the survivor got a the best settlement that was possible in that situation, which is about two or three months of salary, and then left the country because wanted to be in the same industry, but couldn't work in Singapore anymore uh, because felt that, you know, reputationally it might have gotten out and it would be very difficult came back to Singapore after about five years and then felt saved, right? So it's, uh, and, and we also have seen uh, from our AWARE survey, I think it was this year, called I Quit, many people just quit the company. Uh, they just moved on. The, the quitting might not be immediate. It might be after a year. There is, uh, but within two or three years of a harassment case, many uh survivors quit and it affected their career trajectory. They Some of them went to careers where they felt safer. So they like went to childcare. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, from a very high paying industry to an industry that wasn't paying as well. So we saw long-term, very long-term effects of harassment, which was bad for everybody, including the country. Okay, so in this same aware study, right, I actually read about it also, that there's this long-term effect, right, which includes um, a reduction in work productivity that um, 9 in 10 respondents experience after yes. facing workplace sexual harassment, right? Yes. So similar in your experience, um, do you do you actually um, have this kind of feedback from, from, from women? Um, well, not only the productivity suffers while they are still in the job, um, there's a lot of mental distress and it doesn't end the day the job ends or the, the case is resolved, right? Confidentiality or not. Um, I think what we don't have a lot of data on is the longitudinal effects, the long-term psychological or emotional effects on, on victims of harassment, both power and, you know, um, sexual. It can really affect you badly. And of course, it... it, it you know, long-term effects, it's not just that I, I cry once in a while. It can be I make decisions about my future jobs and career progression based on this and I don't fulfill the fullest potential I could have achieved otherwise. And I think once we have a better understanding of that, and I actually think that the effects are a lot worse than we think they are, that should inform the regulatory regime because knowing how bad the effects can be should guide how strictly we should treat these situations or how much you know we should punish people for perpetrating such um, situations as well. Yeah, actually the I Quit report does deal with that, the long-term effects, not just the financial that they change careers, but also psychological. And it was really clear that it was very long-term. 
Um, and so this is an important report. Together with a slightly earlier one we did where we, uh, you know, and this was like a thousand people that were surveyed, two in five said that they had experienced harassment and seven out of ten did not report, right? So the numbers are high. The effects are long-term and can be um, very deep and damaging. Uh, that's why I really feel that we have to have laws on harassment so that companies do the right thing because the advisory is not going far enough. It is a question mark right now whether the Discrimination Act that has been announced will cover also harassment, right? So that companies have to do the right thing. Like I said, there should be a law that says companies have to have policies, train, communicate and address. Uh, will the Anti-Discrimination Act include that? That's what we need, I think, for harassment. And it is a serious problem, right? Both in terms of numbers as well as in terms of the damage. Okay, so I think I'm going to wrap up soon. Um, I will like to ask each one of you, like, what is your wish for for this issue? Like, is there something that you really want the government to resolve, or is it something you want um Singaporeans to 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 move forward to so that we can reduce um sexism in the workplace? How about Simran first? I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. Okay, and really, my wish is that we would have some comprehensive type of education programs for, for the very young uh, to teach them about you know, what's right and wrong, gender stereotypes, what unconscious bias is. So by the time they become adults, they're very alive to these issues and then they hopefully live their lives in a different way and create different work cultures when they do set up their work environment. So for me, it's education. Okay, Corina? I think this is an issue that is everyone's issue. So uh, I have wishes for different levels, you know, for individuals. I think that uh, uh, you, everyone can make a difference. Uh, that can You can be an active bystander. You can be a male ally. Uh, so I think that everyone actually has, has a way to actually uh, speak up, step up, uh, to make sure that the environment is safe. And... We talk about bystanders because in a situation, it's most difficult for the victim who is who is in that situation disempowered, right, to actually do something. So it's the people around that actually need to, to have the power to do something. Um, structurally, we can, uh, in terms of laws, like I said, uh, a, a strong harassment, anti-harassment law could be part of the Discrimination Act. That puts a... Uh, responsibility, right? A stronger responsibility, more concrete responsibility on companies to do the right thing, to set um, their policies, to actually have no tolerance and take action when there has been a breach or violation of, of their, their rules and policies. I think this will go a long way to prevention and deterrent, right? Uh, there are, you know, companies need help, uh, Aware is there, survivors need help. So the, the support is there, right? If you need uh, support to actually put all this in place, we have Catalyze Consulting. If you need help as a survivor, the Workplace Harassment Advisory um, Service that we run, the Sexual Assault Care Centre, are places that you can go to. TAFAP is uh, an authority that you can go to. So we're going in the right direction. 
we have to just keep going. I hope the momentum overall will increase. I think the Anti-Discrimination Act will send a strong, strong, strong signal that we all, you know, as companies have to do better. All in all, I'd like to thank my guests, Corina and Siren, for your time today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening in. See you on the next episode of On Diversity. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. On Diversity is a podcast inspired by the Institute of Policy Studies Managing Diversity's research program. We are available on Omni.fm, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Please follow or subscribe to the On Diversity podcast to get notified when we have a new episode. You can visit our website, ipscommons.sg, for more info.